Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day, this is Better Make It Quick. Thanks for being here. This is um, the quick Wednesday version of Better Than Yesterday. Uh, we're here to make it better since 2013, having conversations every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday with a guest and Friday here with you and every conversation is here to make it better. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm a author. I'm currently sitting in a very fancy lounge in Adelaide because I said, hey, can I record something somewhere? And they, they put me in the, the fancy lounge, not the not the fancy lounge, the ones above that time. The yeah, last time I was in one of these was the Marshall Hines, but it's a long time ago. On Wednesdays, what we do is we play a conversation that we haven't heard for a little while, but it's one that's worth going back and having another listen. Yasmin Abdul-Majid, uh, we talked in 2022. She's an author. She's an engineer. She's an activist. She's extraordinarily intelligent, a lovely human being. But in 2017, Yasmin left Australia for good. She moved to London. And if you recall, it was a pretty much a bloodthirsty campaign in the press, in the parliament, because on the 25th of April, 2017, Yasmin posted seven words onto a Facebook page. Lest we forget, Manus, Nauru, Syria and Palestine. Yeah, cancelled so hard he had to leave the country. In this conversation, Yasmin and I talk about what brought her family to Australia out of Sudan how honoured she felt representing Australia because we go right into the conversation. She represent, We chose her to represent us. And we also talk about her advice on being accountable for your thoughts towards others. So I wanted to know how did Yasmin's journey with Australia, how did it begin? So my mum actually had a pen pal in Brisbane really randomly, like from Sudan. I think he actually was, they were like somewhere in country Queensland. This like father had, you know, encouraged his son to put an ad in this like magazine for like a pen pal from around the world. Yeah, right. And, you know, my mum picked it up across the other side of the wow. world. And so the kid was like a bit too young. The kid was like 10 years old and my mum was like, you know, like an old teenager or yeah. in her early 20s. So it was a bit weird for her to be pen paling a 10 year old, but she ended up 
you know, pen palling with the dad because he was like, who is this random person from yeah. Sudan that's like sending us letters? Wow. We stayed in touch with them. And then when they moved to Brisbane and my parents kind of decided it was time to get out of Sudan, they actually helped us you know, they sent the paperwork over because obviously back in the, you had to like apply with physical papers. So wow. somebody had to actually send you the sheath of papers to fill in and post back to Australia. And so we moved in with them for the first couple of weeks in like Robertson, south side of Brisbane. That's amazing. I know yeah. exactly um, where that is. That is incredible. Musgrave Road. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. it. I know exactly Wild. where it is. And we lived with them and then we you know exactly what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about, right? Yeah, yeah. So imagine 1992, yeah, yeah. this little family from Sudan rocks up. People down Musgrave Road are like, what on earth is going on? Like, who, And it's just a, like, I think I often, I've become that like person who's like, oh, you young people don't understand like what the, what Brisbane was like in the nineties. Like it just was, it was a different planet. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. That's so, so, so beautiful. Do you stay in touch with that family? Yeah. I mean, like they came to my first book launch. Like we went to weddings. Like they, they just kind of forever became family friends. They were also Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, they had loads of kids, understood that we were a family of faith. And that I think also kind of helped so that it wasn't, we weren't like so complete strangers mm. um, or like our way of life wasn't like something that didn't make any sense at all. But I, I guess real, as, as well, yeah, you know, at, it the, was, um, at the time, if you were a JW in Brisbane, at the time you would have been on the outer Without a doubt. I mean, still, it's, you know, viewed yeah. generally like. Yeah, I, I don't actually know what all of their relationships are with the faith anymore. Like, I think yeah. it was very much, I remember at the time, very much. But, yeah, as you say, it definitely sort of keeps you separate from the rest of mm. y- y- the people on the street, as it were. I mean, as you got, obviously, your parents probably would not have told you anything. I, I needed to get into my, my 20s probably after a few wines and maybe even way later into my 30s before mum ever really talked at all about what happened or what mm. it was like when they, were, when they knew they had to go. Did your parents mm. talk to you about what the years were like before you were born and then at what point with this beautiful little baby girl, they're looking down at you going, oh, man, we've got to go. Do they talk about that? Mm. Do you know, it's funny. I think you're right. I think I'm only just getting to the point where these conversations kind of move beyond the, you know, the one or two stories that they always use to talk about that time. So, like, my dad will always reference this time when he, it was my first birthday in Sudan, for example, and he went out to, you know, get me a birthday present. And all I wanted was this, like, little red dress and it cost him a month's salary. Mm. And he was, like, an assistant lecturer or whatever like he he, he had a, a a pretty good academic position and he was sort of and for him he was like how am I going to be able to provide my daughter a life that you know that's the story that he told my whole life mm. and then I you know not that long ago I find out that like my mum had like picked a fight with a secret policeman and like almost got her hand chopped off oh and like that was also partly why we had to I was like how did you get, you really buried the lead, folks. You really buried the, like, how, how, how did you make it about my my dress yeah. rather than mum picking a fight with a secret policeman? I'm sure it's the same, you know, but, I'm sure, like, Audrey's, my wife, uh, her family came from Fiji after the, the first guess, mm. a really big coup in 87. And mm. if you know anything about that that particular coup, it was um, the reason everything's terrible is those guys. It wasn't. Like mm. that happens a lot mm. and it just became unsafe. Yeah. And I'm sure in a way kind of not necessarily as much my parents but it sounds like as your parents is like it's probably a decade or two before they go, 
Okay, I think we made it. I think we're safe. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's and it's also like it's that thing you realize when you start to like get a bit older, late twenties, early thirties, whatever. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my parents were this age when they left. Yeah. My parents were like this age when they had a child that they had to take care of and they decided to pick up and move to the other side of the world and they had no idea when they were going to be back. They had no idea what kind of world was on the other side. And I I just, every time I really deep it, I'm like, rah, that is wild. Mm. And that is a type of, you know, my mom once said to me, she was like, I think your dad like used up all of his, all of his risk tolerance, you know, in the move. Like, Mm. you know, my dad, I think in many ways, is a risk averse kind of a man. And I think, you know, I mean, this is, you know, armchair psychology or whatever, but if you've used all your ability to like take a massive risk on this thing that really is so difficult and so, you know, traumatizing in some way, it does make sense that after that, you're like, you know what, let me just do the safe, like the, let me just kind of try to handle my business quietly. So I don't have to ever do this again. Now, as a young woman, Yasmin was entrusted to go to other countries, to talk about Australia, talk about the country that had taken in her family. What did it mean to Yasmin? Oh, it was a huge honour. And I think that, like, it was kind of the manifestation of everything that my parents could have wanted to give their daughter. And it was my way of showing my gratitude, really, Mm. to a nation that had that I felt had provided me and my family a sense of safety and opportunity that unfortunately was rapidly becoming impossible to find in Sudan. Mm. I always took those opportunities very seriously. Like, you know, when I left Australia, I resigned from nine different boards and councils because I was always serving, you know, on boards. Like, I think my first board was when I was like 13 I ran Youth Without Borders for nine years. Yeah, it was wild. I was constantly reading board papers and constantly going to, you know, strategy meetings about how we could help this community or work with young people here. Or And, like, for me, I was like, I'm living a life of service. Like, mm. that is what I want to do. And, and to be honest, I think also, like, I didn't really, I always felt that the, you know, all the accolades were lovely, but also I never felt that I was doing anything it's it's funny because I think like in the culture that I'm from, like serving your community isn't something that is necessarily like a laudable thing. It's mm-hmm. just how you operate. Yeah. Like my parents were volunteering and being involved my entire life. Like I'd never seen them not be involved in the community. So it was always funny to me because I'm like, I'm just kind of doing what we do. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is the way that I practice my faith. This is the way that I engage in my community. And it's very lovely that you all want to recognize me for it, but you know, what would be better is if we could like maybe implement some of the recommendations that we think would be good or whatever, as opposed to, you know, making an exception out of me. But I didn't have the language, I think, for that kind of stuff then. I had I had a sense and a feeling, but mm. I didn't quite know how to like translate that. And so I I very much was like, let me use all these opportunities and show people, you know, Muslims aren't terrorists and show people <laughs> we can be part of the conversation as well. So I really like took that responsibility on pretty seriously. It's kind of interesting and, and I lead a secular life and I kind of I, I miss that about that we don't mm. have that so much in day-to-day Australian culture that those community moments and this mm. being of service to others isn't kind of baked into what it is to be mm. to one's identity in our community, I guess. Yeah. I think that humans 
kind of need that, right? Yeah. And like whether you associate it with religion or another kind of construct or framework, the reality is like Australia has tried to create those moments in different ways, whether it's through sport, mm. whether it's through, you know, national days of significance, rightly or wrongly. Part of the reason they are so imbued with importance is because we need ritual and we need moments to come around. And like one of the, the things I often think about is like, in Islam, when, you know, the Eids, like the little Eid, which is the one that comes after Ramadan, and then big Eid, which comes about 70 days later. Initially, if my memory serves me correctly, they were like pagan festivals. And then the Prophet Muhammad was like, people still need to celebrate. So let's like, let's just like repurpose them for our sort of religious Oh, hang on. So he festivals. did a hell of can I say he? Can I say the name? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of okay. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the, just the Prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> He kind of did a Helen of Constantine. Mm. He went, oh, look, mm. look, if we're all going to be here together, I know I know it's a solstice, but let's just say Christ was born on that day. There we go. <laughs> right, right, and, right. Yeah. <laughs> just right. Because that was it. the thing is the people need the celebration. They, yeah. You know, it matters. I'm always, like, so amused when I go to parts of the world where, like, a building has been a church, a mosque, a church again, maybe a synagogue. Like, you know, it's the same building. Southern yeah. Spain is full of stuff like this. Like, all of yeah. these places that were mosques are now churches and vice versa. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's broadly just people needing to get together to, like, believe in something bigger than themselves. And then the rest is details and semantics. I mean, obviously, I'm being a bit cheeky, but you know what I mean. No, I, no. Oh, look, trust me. I I have stood in the middle of the old city of of Jerusalem, and uh, I have seen like this. It's a complicated mm. scenario. Like I wouldn't even begin mm. to grapple with that. Oh, uh, I just kind of watched it all. I was like, boy, there's a lot going on here, guys. Um, so, look, mm-hmm. I, I guess I wanted to ask this, this, what it felt like to go back to Sudan, you know, as an adult, to go to mm. the UAE, to go to Saudi Arabia, which is very different when you went. It's very different now to when you went to go to Egypt. Mm. You went after the Arab Spring. So, very, you know, mm. Mubarak was gone. Complicated. So complicated. But what's happening? Mm. And then to come be in our country, this country that you were so proud of, to be so mm. abs-fucking-lutely publicly just vilified mm. uh, it, it must have been just it must have broken your heart yeah I mean like that's ultimately so like one of the essays that I included in talking about a revolution was it a piece that I wrote pretty soon after I left and it was ultimately just a piece about grief mm. I think people perhaps you know this kind of gets lost in the story and people, you know, freaking out about whatever I say. But I cannot really kind of explain how my sense of the world was so shattered Mm. and I just could not get my head around this place that I loved so much turning against me in such a way. And for me to sort of feel so isolated in that and for nobody really to be able to, at the time, say, this is happening for this rational reason, you know, because it never felt rational. It never felt proportional. It never felt like I could actually do anything about it. And so I kind of had to make sense of a nonsensical experience at the age of like 25, 26. I was living away from my parents. I was in this, I just think like it completely shattered my sense of the world and broke my heart. And I said, I've said that 
you know, many times. And I think people kind of take that a bit personally, but I'm like, it makes complete sense. Like, yeah. of course it would break your heart. Of Like, it's a place that you loved, that you were willing to travel around the world and tell how, like, I told kids in Palestine how wonderful Australia was. I told my friends and family in Sudan. I went to, you know, I was did rally car driving in Jordan and that was part of me telling the people how wonderful this country was and how and the opportunities it gave me. And then I come back and not even a year later find myself like experiencing the same type of, you know, emotional ostracization that that I couldn't even imagine in those very countries that I had just, you know, <laughs> spent time extolling Australia. Yeah. You know, it was just like, and I remember my uncle called me up and he was like, he was like, look, you know, if you want to come back to, I think he was living in the Middle East. He was like, if you want to come back, like there's always a place here for you because he was like, because this is what always happened. They will never, they will never actually accept us. So know that like, you know, you can come back to Sudan and it'll, you'll be safe here, which is wild. We're back in a moment with Yasmin Abdul-Majid, but we do have to play some ads, so back in a moment. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today, we're revisiting our conversation with Yasmin Abdul-Majid from uh, 2022. She's a very smart woman. And I was intrigued when she had this advice to share because I, I asked her about her thoughts on being accountable for who, I guess, you apply your thoughts to. I always say to people, like, when you find yourself, like, thinking quickly or, like, thinking you have the automatic answer to something about someone or a group of people or anything, like, if you think when somebody asks you, you know, Osha, if somebody asks you about your partner or your kid, it takes you some time to answer because that person is complicated Mm. and complex and they're a full human. And so you don't give like an easy pat answer, an immediate half millisecond answer because you actually have to think about it. But when we have immediate answers to, oh, what's that person like? Or what's that group of people like? The first thought, that's actually, that is like 100% the bias, the shortcut our brains make. And so like the moment we start to notice that we have a pat shortcut answer to a whole group of people or to a whole whatever, the question I, where did you get that information from? What is that opinion based on? You know, if you actually don't know, or if it's like vague, or if it's not actually something, I mean, I always say to people, 
the opinion you have of Muslims, where does that come from? Does it come from research you yourself have done on like, you know, what actual Muslims do and don't think and spend their time doing? And have you gone and and researched what the Quran says like in a deep way and not just what it says on Reddit? Or is it like, oh, I've done a bit of social media Googling and I listen to the news and I, you know, my uncle once said this thing and therefore I now am fully informed on the whole 1400 years of Islamic theology and what Muslims are like. You know, of course not. And so I like that's the challenge. It's like Where are you actually getting your information from? And I mean, again, in a time of loads of disinformation and misinformation, a little bit more challenging. But just slow your thinking down and ask, am I really sure about this? How do I double check? And how do I make sure that I'm just not parroting, you know, a dehumanizing perspective, but I'm actually giving people the kind of respect that I myself would want to be treated with? I certainly wouldn't want people to decide how they do or don't treat me based on a couple of grainy reposted memes, but that seems to be what happens. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just am constantly amused at, like, how wild the perception of of me is sometimes. Somebody actually was like, oh, like, you're actually, you have, like, a sense of humour. You're, like, really funny. Like, I just, I just expected you to be, like, so much more serious. Like, you come across this really hard line. I'm like, okay. Um, (laughs) Do you know what hard line is? (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Have you? I'm sorry, but, like. Have you seen photos of Tehran (laughs) from 77 to 80? Like, have you seen? Like, do you? (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, if you think I'm hardline, like just oh wait. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh man! I remember I occasionally try to make jokes on Twitter, which is you know always a risky business, and people quite often respond to my jokes with full mm. seriousness. They'll be like, mm, "I'm sorry, but have you ever actually thought of this particular?" I'm like, <laughs> "Guys, let me make a joke. God damn it!" Like I. <laughs> I'm just trying to make a dad oh, joke, man. okay? Like, allow it. <laughs> if you want to hear my full conversation with Yasmin Abdul-Majid, it's a, I thoroughly recommend it. It's brilliant. I learned a lot from it. Uh, we take a deep dive into her life, her family. We hear her thoughts about being a mechanical engineer, which is great, to her thoughts about Australia and how Australia, if it wanted to, could become a fully renewable, domestically renewable, completely powered nation. Episode 439, well worth it. If you need to email me, send Osher email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Andy Ma for uh, audio post on this. Um, thanks to Abby Benno for producing this episode, Toehider for all the music, and the lovely people at the Qantas Club in um, Adelaide who let me sit in this very fancy room with wood panelling. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.